You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome on behalf of our Pratt Board of Directors, and uh, we have a number of directors and uh, trustees here tonight. Would you all wave or, yeah, let everybody see that you're here? Verna? Um, we're excited to have everyone here tonight. This is a beautiful room. I want you all to take a second to take a look at the Sam Gilliam, which is a beautiful uh, just a beautiful piece that was given uh, to the Pratt in honor of Eddie and Sylvia Brown, uh, for whom this is named, and that was a gift from Vernon Reed, who's also our former chair. Uh, I want to say thank you especially to Lydia and to Calvin Baker. Um, Lydia is a board member. You all know, maybe you saw her wave. And uh, she's uh, just already been a terrific light to the board, uh, brings so much talent and enthusiasm, and, uh, and brings a nice gentleman with her, too. Um, they've been so generous to all of the city. We know that. Uh, active in uh, so many things. And I know, Calvin, you're active with the Walters, and the, uh, the Pratt is so proud to have you with us. So thank you for entertaining us tonight. Thank you. Um, also, uh, when the board members raised their hand, Bob uh, Hellman raised his hand and was wanting to make sure. Uh, he reminded me to remind you that Mr. Pratt's party this year, uh, for those of us who want a different look at back when politicians didn't get along, um, <laughs> the theme is Hamilton, and we know how that ended. But um, we, uh, we have a, th- a theme of Hamilton and the author, um, who Ron... Chernow is going to be the speaker. It's Mr. Pratt's party. It's going to be April 8th. It's going to be uh, right down the, well, not down the street, down Charles at the Scottish Rite because this building won't be used for that uh, by that point. You can see what's going on. It's exciting. You're going to be so excited to see what all is happening in this building. Uh, The boiler that was the size of this room has gone out, and there are now two boilers to replace it that are about the size of this podium, things like that. But not much had been done since uh, 1932 when it was finished. So thank you all for being here tonight. I want to introduce Anne-Marie Harvey. Anne is the, uh, Ms. Harvey is the director of the Waverly Branch, which if you haven't had a chance to see that, that's recently been remodeled too and looks fantastic. And she's going to introduce our speaker, who we are so excited that she's back at Pratt and hopes that with every book that she writes, and we know there are going to be many, uh, that, that Pratt will always be a stop on the way. So thanks for being here. Ms. Harvey. Good evening. Are you nervous? Should I be nervous? (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Well, um, as Ms. Lasher mentioned, I am the manager of the Waverly Branch. I do want to welcome you again to this installment of the Brown Lecture Series made possible by Eddie at C. and C. Sylvia Brown Foundation. And a special thanks again to Mr. Calvin Baker and Lydia Pitt. 
Paz Baker for their support of this program. Um, tonight, Ms. Ryan will look at race relations through the lessons that mothers of celebrities, political leaders, and others transmit to their children in her latest book, At Mama's Knees, Mothers and Race in Black and White. As a daughter and also the mother of two girls, Ms. Ryan knows firsthand the knowledge and wisdom passed from generation to generation at Mama's Knees. Now, having heard that I would introduce Ms. Ryan and the title of the book, At Mama's Knees, I had flashbacks of being at Mama's Knees. Now, picture this, it's hair wash day. Where are you sitting? Okay, picture this, the comb, the brush, the lessons, the tears, and some more lessons, and some more tears, and that's what I thought about at Mama's Knees. And it, it reminds me that little lessons are passed on to us without even us knowing it. And this is what this book is all about to me. Um, and so, ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you to welcome Miss April Ryan. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Wow. I am so excited to be in this space in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland, not Washington, D.C. It's intentional. It's intentional that I'm here tonight. Trust me. <laughs> it's interesting. Judy emailed me about a month ago, right? And you said, you know, you know, you've got a, uh, an engagement the day before inauguration. Are you sure you want? I said, I want to do it. I want to do it. So, <laughs> Um, this was intentional to be here tonight. Um, and I think we all need this at this time. Who said yes? Okay. All right. <laughs> and I want to thank so many people in this room. First, I want to thank Lydia Paz Baker and her husband, Mr. Calvin Baker, for extending such hospitality for me this evening and for all the guests. Let's give them a big round of applause. In their absence, I would like to also say thank you to Eddie and Sylvia Brown for their lecture series. It's an amazing lecture series. we got to keep things like this going. So authors like April Ryan and, and Michael Higginbotham and all the other people. Where's Michael Higginbotham? Is he still here? Okay, well, he's over at the University of Maryland at Baltimore, and uh, he talks about race as well. And But many authors, I mean, we've got a lot of great authors out of this area. Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates, I mean, oh, my goodness. I just heard about a story um, about ta and President Obama the other day. I couldn't believe it. But we have to keep this thing going. But I also want to thank, I, I see faces from way back. <laughs> I see mentors, and I see elected officials, former elected officials, who are now private citizens in their, uh, their real people world now. But um, I, want to, I want to thank the former Baltimore City State's attorney, Stu Sims, for coming. I, I, saw, this, I saw this message. What? What? You're here? Please stand up. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I worked with him when I was here in Baltimore, WBGR, Heaven 600, and V103. Thank you so much, sir. And then there's another person around here. Wow. He used to be, he used to work down the street, around the corner, in this big building called City Hall. <laughs> and he happened to have this real fancy title, Mayor. And <laughs> And I always, you know, they tell you to surround yourself around greatness, right? 
And I always was intrigued by this person. I said, wow, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's from Baltimore. And he's a black man. I said, wow. And here I'm this little lowly news director. Was it WBGR? And, and then, you know, later on, you know, he moved on and he kept in touch with me. He allowed me to talk to him. He allowed me to ask him questions. He allowed me to throw some problems I had at him. And he helped me solve them. And I want to give a great round of applause and a great thank you to a dear friend, former Baltimore Mayor Kurt Schmoke, who went on to every title that he has, I laugh. I used to call, I said, Mr. Mayor, then I went, Mr. Dean, now I go, Mr. President, thank you. <laughs> the president of the University of Maryland at Baltimore. I mean, that's amazing to have that kind of friendship. Wow, it's still awe-inspiring. And you are in, did you find your chapter? I got it right? Okay, good. <laughs> so he allowed me, and he was in the first book. You know, you saw an email that we exchanged uh, in the first book, and he talked to me about uh, some things, issues of Baltimore. And again, I said tonight in this space that we have, I'm intentioned to be here tonight. How many of you are okay? How many of you are okay with the climate right now? How many of you are at a dis-ease? Be honest, this is us. All right. <laughs> Again, I saw a few hands go up tentatively. How many of you are at a dis-ease right now? Amen. Amen and amen. So, there is a shift at 12.01 tomorrow, 12.01, January 20th, 2017. There will be a shift in this nation. There will be something called the post Obama era. It's a new marker. The post-Obama era. And what will that look like at a time where we're sitting in a city that's still hurting? What will the post-Obama era look like when our children still are having a hard time in school, when they are still striving to learn how to read? How would that look like when many of us are still trying to fix our health situation and looking to Obamacare, which will turn into Trump care? How will our urban blight be fixed? What will that look like? How many of you catch the train? How many of you catch the train going up and down 95? And when you come into Baltimore, what do you see? What do you see? I didn't know that that was my Baltimore. I did not know that that was my Baltimore until I saw Freddie Gray. This is the city that I love. I grew up here. Mr. Mayor, didn't I grow up in here? Okay, you, you. Mr. Sims, didn't I? I worked here. I lived. Sue Wood, didn't I grow up here? Okay. <laughs> Many of my friends are here. But, you know, this book was born out of the Baltimore unrest, the pain that I felt. And I'm going to take you into this book at Mama's Knee. It took me a year to write, but it was born out of pain. And many of us, if we're not mothers, we mother someone or have been a mothering influence to someone or many children or many people. And with that said, I talk about race at the White House. I ask presidents questions about race at the White House. I ask world leaders about global issues of race. And how could I ask 
the head of this nation, the leader of the free world about race, and not be able to go to my home and talk to my children about it. So it started for me with Tamir Rice. And that was a very troubling situation to report on. But, and it's in this book, At Mama's Knee, but the test of my influence on my children came not long after Tamir Rice was killed. Tamir Rice was killed by police in Cleveland. He was a little boy, 12 years old, playing with a toy gun, and he was shot dead by police because someone called saying it was a toy gun, but the dispatcher did not relay the information correctly, or there was some kind of disconnect. With that, a 12-year-old child playing with a gun is dead. Because of that, my aunt who's here tonight, my little daughter is in our backyard that adjoins many backyards, and she's playing with her little Nerf cannon soft-tip gun. My aunt goes out there, come back in this house. And Gracie's like, why, why? A little boy was killed because he was playing with a gun, and she couldn't believe it. At that time, she was about seven years old. She could not believe it. I couldn't believe it when I saw it myself. But that was to protect our children, to tell them to get back. That's the reality that we are living in today. So I said, come inside, after my aunt said, come inside. And my come inside was when I came home. I said, don't go outside. Come inside. Don't use that gun outside. Come inside and use that gun. It's about coming inside with a toy gun. How many of you grew up playing cops and robbers and with guns outside? Your mama said, don't play with the balls and the guns in the house, right? Come out. Come from outside. Come inside now. So Gracie didn't believe me. Gracie still had a hard time. She's like, Mommy, I don't understand. I said, Gracie, it's real. I had to show my seven-year-old this graphic video. I had to say, come inside. I had to show her this graphic video of this little 12-year-old being shot dead by a police officer. She believed me. She understands. So let's fast forward to April 27th, a couple of years ago. Not many years ago, about two years ago here in Baltimore, some haunts that we travel around, travel to. You know, I grew up going to piano lessons on Tioga Parkway, right next to Mondawmin Mall. When it was on the national news, I was like, what is this? That's where I go, went to the mall. I went to go get subs, and I went through the mall just looking around and visiting Black Santa. This is Mondawmin Mall. They couldn't pronounce it. They could, they could not pronounce Mondam and Mall. But I'm like, that's where I know I frequented as a child. Penn and North. I'm like, that's where my mother used to take me to go to the dentist when I was a kid. I'm like, this is my Baltimore. That's where I still, not far from there, I still go to the hairdresser. So no matter how far you go, you still come back home. Come inside. So... With that said, I'm sitting here watching from my White House booth what was happening in Baltimore. No matter how far you think you've come, you can wear your red bottoms and have your M-bends and maybe even a Tesla. You still back home. You come inside. 
So the bottom line is I'm at the White House and I'm getting these calls. You better come and get those kids. My children were 11.5 miles away from Mondami Mall where the rock throwing happened. And as I'm driving, people are calling me, where are the girls, where are the girls? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I'm trying to get them. Another woman, another parent, another mother felt my heart and grabbed my kids for me and picked my children up as I'm driving from the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the closer to home I drove, the harder it was to get to my children. So with that, I'm hearing on on the TV about all the melee. I'm hearing in my car on CNN, MSNBC, all the news, Fox even, about the melee in my town, our town, the place that we love. And I'm like, what is going on? It felt like Armageddon. So the closer to home I got, the harder it was to get there. But someone had my children. So they said, Mommy, they were let out of school, no after-school activities. Mommy, what is this about? I had to tell them. I had to let them know a young man who should not have been taken into custody somehow died in custody in a van. I had to talk to them about the relationship, the historic relationship between the police and the black community. But I also said, we support the police. I say this again, we support the police, but we weed out bad policing. It came home for me. How many of you want your children to have sugar and spice and everything nice? Yeah. And it's hard, the realities of life are real. They came home crashing down, you know, I worked myself to the bone to make sure that my children are not a statistic. But guess what? That day, there were black children of a divorced mother in Baltimore. We were a statistic. But like that mother that we saw in that viral video, and this is all in my book, like that mother we saw in that viral video, Toya Graham, I commend her. If it had not been for her instinctive nature, how in the world did she find that child with a mask? <laughs> With a mask on, there's some, some kind of superhuman juice right there. Super mother juice. She has an S on her chest. No, SM, super mom. I mean, a mask and just looked at his eyes and his pants, and then she grabbed him. He was like, yes, mommy. Out of all those people. <laughs> How does that happen? That's called mothering. You know, where were those other people? Am I right? Where were those? Preach, yes. Say, I like interaction. So... <laughs> But where were those other parents? And everybody was talking about, and I know we have some lawyers in the room. You know I'm looking at you. <laughs> we have some lawyers in the room, but I believe in corporal punishment. I, you know, and I know some of you enacted it, and I know some of you still feel the sting of it. So I was from a mother who had a switch and a father who had a belt. So how many, <laughs> how many, yes, my mother, my dear sweet mother, she was very sweet and quiet, but she knew how to get a switch, and it was a green switch, too, one that lasted a lot. You knew about those green switches, and they would bounce back on you, you know? <laughs> it's like a basketball, it hits you, ow! So, but, you know, that was love. And then, and then you're watching mainstream America 
oh, I think that was the worst thing to do. I said, well, guess what? (laughs) If it were me, she did the right thing. And I, for this book, I interviewed Toya Graham, but she did not want to be named and have her quotes in the book. And I understand why. And I'm not going to get into what she said. But still, even with that, I applaud her. And I think of her, and I thought of her, and in one of the chapters, I talk about how there was such a parallel universe. Here she is reaching for her children, or her child at that time, a mother of three children. She's reaching for her only son, trying to save him, and here I am driving from the White House trying to save my children, not knowing what's going on. Two different women, two different situations, but we still were moms trying to save our children. And in this book, I'm really proud of the fact that people felt close enough to me and trusted me enough to be able to talk to me from the heart about their mother, about how they mothered. And some of the stories, for instance, Christopher Darden, the former O.J. Simpson prosecutor, He had never talked to his mother about race until, and they're in their evening years, until not this past New Year's, but the New Year's prior. She was 81 years old, and he had never talked to his mother about issues of race. And I felt bad for him because he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know, I never knew this, but I'm so glad that he got that nugget before it was too late. But I'm going to go to to Baltimore, a city that I love. (sighs) Baltimore is like many other urban centers. When you get into the weeds of looking at the construct of cities, there is at least one common denominator connecting cities throughout this nation and even the world. These are varying socioeconomic communities that uniquely make up each locale. Like Baltimore, many cities, no matter if they're organically created or planned, have these differing sections that create flavor and authenticity. The city of Baltimore is an area of pockets. They are examples of its polar opposite neighborhood dynamic. Take the Sandtown Winchester neighborhood and the Penn North section of Baltimore. This is a place of extreme poverty where the riots took place in April 2015. But when you move not far from that area, just blocks away from the enclave, is Bolton Hill. There's wealth and status. There's a marrying of two worlds, but the twain shall never meet. For a bit of background in the 1980s under Kurt Schmoke, then mayor of Baltimore, $130 million was poured into the area in collaboration with the Rouse Company. This is the same company that in 1967 helped create Columbia, Maryland, a planned community that has been consistently ranked in the top 10 best places to live and located in Howard County, one of the wealthiest counties in the nation. But once the new mayor, Martin O'Malley, ran City Hall, the steam on the project began to fade until it was no longer visible. Baltimore is a working-class, blue-collar city, has recently been in the glaring spotlight targeting the worst. There are families in the city and surrounding conjoined areas that send their kids to some of the most elite educational institutions in this country. They live in mega homes with an unparalleled lifestyle many people can only dream about. But Baltimore is bleeding. That's one chapter, Tale of Two Cities. That's what we're seeing nationally. 
and this book was born out of the riots in Baltimore. But as we are seeing a transition tomorrow, I want to share something with you from our outgoing president who told me of his mother, President Barack Obama. And he normally does not talk about his mother. He talks normally about his father, but he talked about his mom. And I asked a lot of people who were mothered or who were mothers how they influenced their children. Because when you talk about race, it's a heart issue. You can legislate it. But what happens after you legislate it? The heart and mind have to line up. It comes from that sacred place. And this is what President Obama said. When I was growing up, my mother would come home with books on the civil rights movement, and I read the speeches of Dr. King. She told me stories of black school children in the South who didn't have the same chance at success as white school children, but who still became doctors and lawyers and scientists. It was in this context that I learned that to be black was to shoulder an important burden. We know bigotry still exists. My mother knew that too. But we would betray the efforts of those who fought so hard for equality if we denied the possibility of progress and gave up. More than a single conversation with my mother, it was her love throughout my life that helped me see the world's promise and inspired the best in me. I learned the value of not letting despair turn into cynicism because it's hope that creates the change that we seek. He gave us information about his mother and her audacity to hope for a better day, a white woman. That's from our 44th president of the United States. But you know, when you think of mothers, and I think of the stories that are in this book, I think of people like Congressman John Lewis, who offered me an interview for this book. I love Congressman John Lewis. I love me some Congressman John Lewis. And it's crazy because with all of this back and forth that happened last week, I told someone in the Trump administration, I said, that's a no-no. I said, touching John Lewis is like touching the third rail. I said, that's what you do not want to do. (laughs) But, you know, here you have this man who is one of the most amazing people you will ever meet. And he, in, in interviewing him for this book, he said, I'm still afraid of thunder and lightning. But he got his skull cracked. He was chased by dogs, burned by the, the, the fierce flash of the water hose. But yet he's afraid of thunder and lightning. <laughs> but what's crazy is his mother did not want him to be involved in any way in the civil rights movement. Again, Congressman John Lewis, who marched with Dr. King, a leader of what, SNCC, he was not supposed to, according to his mother, march with Dr. King. Why? Because as black folks in Alabama, they didn't want to rock the boat back then. And what did rock the boat mean? If you rock the boat, guess what? You lost your hundred of acres of land that your father paid $300 for that they still have today. Your house could have been bombed. They didn't want to rock the boat. But see, John Lewis was a little inquisitive little thing. He's like, well, why can't I go and get a library card like all the other white kids? His mother said, boy, sit down. 
well, I want to go to Troy State. And there was no other black person at Troy State. And Dr. King, that's when Dr. King started calling him the boy from Troy. But ultimately, he did not attend Troy State University. But the fear was placed in his mother's heart that they could lose everything if he dared to be different and dared to challenge the system. When blacks in that part of Alabama were okay at that time, they were able to deal with Jim Crow at that time. So she kept saying, boy, no, don't do this. But she found out about what he was doing, and she wrote him a letter when he started marching with Dr. King. But he kept on. But the reason why he kept on, his mother influenced this. Even though she did not want him to march, she influenced him. How? Because of her faith in God. She kept saying things like, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed. All right, church. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? So she would say things like that. And he felt and he said, if that same God can carry her through and make her feel okay during the day, that same God can carry me through. And guess what? She still didn't want it, even though he was marching and, and they got the Civil Rights Act. She still didn't want him to do it. And then they, those, little, those little black boys and, and that, that were led by Dr. King, his little lieutenants, they said, okay, let's rally and get some more going. And in one year, they tried to get the Voting Rights Act. And guess what? They got the Voting Rights Act. They were bloodied, they were beaten, they were bruised, but they got the Voting Rights Act. And that's when she said, okay, this might be something to this. <laughs> and he said after that, she decided to even help register people to vote. That's when she changed, all those years. And in his conversation, you know, he was telling me about how the mothers of the movement, how they were in the South and how the mothers would, would, would give, put pallets on the floor. They didn't have beds. At that time, black people could not stay in hotels, how many of you remember that? You had to stay in the South. You had to pull over on the side of the road, sleep, or go over somebody's house, call somebody. Hey, uh, Sumay, I'm coming down. You got a room for us. So black people weren't allowed to stay in hotels, so they stayed in other homes of friends and people and the farms. And those women, those mothers, put pallets on the floor for people like Dr. King, Harry Belafonte, who is 90 years old and still as sharp as a tag, and not only that, they, to feed them the resource piece. And we didn't have resources, but we, we, we lived off of what we had and what we could give. They ate from the fields. They ate food from the fields, the potatoes, the carrots, the greens, the collard greens, the kale, the mustard, all that stuff. That's some good eating. That's good eating. And they marched on. But in the midst of this, the struggle and mother's influence. And, and I just said something about Harry Belafonte. In this book, Harry Belafonte talks about his mom and how his mom struggled. His mom told him, I don't ever want you to see an injustice and not do something about it. So he was an activist before he became an entertainer. And two weeks ago, I was blessed to get a call from Harry Belafonte. He said, I want to have, have dinner with you. I was like, what? Said, Harry Belafonte, what? He was fine in Carmen. Woo! <laughs> I love me some Carmen. I, Carmen is a nice movie. <laughs> but at 90 years old, I said, Mr. Belafonte, 
We had tea. I couldn't do dinner. We had tea. And at 90 years old, Mr. Belafonte said, I want to talk to you. He said, I love you. I said, I love you. You don't know this. I love you. And I said, but you know, people, you're in this book. But I said, let's talk about now. And basically the same thing he was saying in the book about activism. He said to me a couple of weeks ago in his apartment in New York, and he said, you know, he talked about the resources. He said, one of the reasons why we might not have the consistency now and the persistence to keep marches going is because of resources. But he did say something about encouragement as it pertains to issues of race and inequality and, 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 and the fight still for first-class citizenship. He said this, and I'm paraphrasing, he said when he talked to Du Bois and Robeson, he, he listened to them as a young man and, and Dr. King. But he said, W.E.B. Du Bois said something very poignant. He said that E.B. Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois said, you have to feel a lot of pain. You have to basically hit rock bottom before there is radical change, radical activism that creates that change. So with that, he said, I feel very good about the transition of power. He said, because this is where we are. We are at rock bottom now. He says, it's time for radical activism for that change. So listening to Harry Belafonte say these things, listening to, listening to Doc, Congressman John Lewis and so many different people talk about how their moms influenced them. It's just been amazing. And it just let me know that we are not alone. We're different, but we're the same trying to navigate through. And then I talked to people like Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin, Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner. Eric Garner, who said 11 times, I can't breathe in New York. They talked to their children, too, about race. And the reason why it's important to talk about them and to talk about women, because women are now increasing in number as the head of household, as the sole provider. And men normally used to give that talk to their boys. It was a rite of passage. It was a way to keep them safe. But now mothers, I'm a divorced mother of two little girls. I'm giving that talk. So this is what this book is about. It's about the talk. It's about how you mother, how your mother mothered you on issues of race. It's about life. It's about real life. It's about the here and now. It's about this place that we love. We are in the heart of it. It's about New York. It's about Ferguson. It's about every city that's our city. It's about the future. It's about tomorrow. It's intentional that I'm here tonight. And tomorrow, there's going to be a shift. But I guarantee you, there are going to be more talks. I think there are more talks now. I hear more children. How many of you hear children talking about, oh, I like Donald Trump, or no, I don't like Donald Trump? How many of you are hearing the kids talking about it? This is real. And are you talking to the children about it? Yes, I see one of my children's old teachers. Are they, are they talking about it in your school? Yes. Are the children talking about it? And what are you saying? You are influencing them. What are you saying? What are you saying? And with that, I want to thank you for listening, and I'm going to open it up to questions.
Thank you for being the first one. Everybody's always scared. <laughs> so April, I just want to say thanks. Oh, um, just something that's slightly off topic, but since it's near, the city Uh-oh. is near and dear to your heart. But as a person who knows that the power of words, um, I just wanted to get your, your feeling on, just your, your opinion on even just the labeling of, so the, so the narrative of what happened um, with the tragedy in Baltimore, meaning the issue, because it's, it's just something that, that is important to me, riot versus uprising. And I'm sure you've heard you both of what? these terms. Yeah, somebody, yes. got, somebody got angry with me for saying riot. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm politi- I, am, I am someone who tries to be politically correct, okay? I know the incoming president says he doesn't care about it, but I do. Um, okay, I can, okay, I can say a, a, a soft term or make it politically correct. It was an uprising. But you know what? Those kids were out there throwing rocks at the police. I saw it on TV. I saw ugliness, and I'm so thankful that those police officers. Hello, Mr. Ward. Thank you. Is that Kip Ward in the back? Is that Kip Ward? I'm sorry. I, I thought that was Kip Ward, General Kip Ward. Is it? Oh, no, it might not be, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> I can't see. I'm getting older. I'm sorry. Um, those kids were throwing rocks at the police. Yeah, you're angry. Yeah, you're upset. There's a lot to be angry with around here. There's a lot to be angry with. Just being, just being right now, there's a lot to be angry about. But there's a way that you have to handle it and, and deliver that anger. You cannot just do that. That lawlessness. And I'm going to tell you this, and I'm glad that you said that, and I wrote this in the book. Outgoing Homeland Security Head, Jay Johnson, and Mr. Sims, I'm sure you will agree with me about this statement. Outgoing Homeland Security Head Jay Johnson said, when there is a breach of trust between our community and law enforcement, he said it's a national security issue. And you know why? See, you can call it unrest, you can call it riot, whatever, but there was a breach. And the reason why you don't trust them, they don't trust you. And if they're looking for a suspect, they can't trust you to tell the truth and you can't trust them to see if they're not going to come after somebody that you know. So th- there is a breach. I'm not into that, the word thing, but if that's the what's being said, unrest, so be it. But it was, it was bad. I mean, it was not Ferguson, it was not militarization. It was not tear gassing like Ferguson. It was some problems. They, they did throw tear gas. They did throw do some things. And, but, and some people were arrested, but we did not see Ferguson. But it was still unrest. It was still, they were rioting after the funeral. They were rioting at Mondawmin Mall. And they were scared. We were, they shut my, my children's school down. I didn't go to work the next day. I worked from home because they shut the school down um, that next day early because we didn't know what was going to happen because they were they were scared they would come out on the on the subway line and there were helicopters they were out at the mall with with police officers there guarding with guns i mean that's not just a simple pat on the hand unrest that is some serious concern so i'm not into the word i'm i I am i believe in words words mean something but it was unrest but that that first day was a riot that first day was a riot. I mean, do you do you believe it was a riot? I mean, so what is this wave going on? Unrest versus riot. What? Why are we trying to water it down? What is? Can somebody? No, seriously, don't don't mm, tell me. What is it? Tell me. Okay. Okay. Yes. Tell me. Um, 
mainstream is saying riot and No, unrest. Unrest versus unrest versus riot. It was an uprising. Now, I'm not taking uprising away. It was an uprising. The unrest versus riot. So what was, okay, all right, I'm not going to get it, okay. Okay, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. So how many people in here want unrest? Hmm. How many people want, how many people believe it was a riot? Would you say riot is the language of the unheard? Speak it, Kimberly, thank you. <laughs> all right, so riot is the language of the unheard. Okay, Ms. Dr. Johnson, would, okay, yes, ma'am, first look. I think part of it is that Every time it's a black thing, the words have a slightly different connotation. There was a lot of uh, discussion about whether they were thugs or they hmm. were just children. Every time. And you know what? And that thug thing, that came up. That came he, up. That came up from the, from the football player. Because at first, we, yeah. the word thug was commonly used. But then after the football uh, the football player was called a thug on TV. That was a very negative connotation. We don't say that anymore. But you know what? I'm glad you say that. And I'm going to go to this chapter, the N-word chapter. In my book, hmm, I have a very, <laughs> I have a very controversial chapter. How many of you read the book so far? How many of you read the N-word chapter? What you think? Yeah. So we're on this discussion and this is something this is something that mothers talk about as well. Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker talked about his mother teaching him right and wrong and the words to say and he wouldn't use the n word out of his mouth because he believes in your words mean something, the vibrational words in the air. And I started out with this dissertation of sorts, the ER versus the A. The ER versus the A. And either way, it's derived from something very negative. And I concluded by saying, never either or. And the bottom line is, and, and one of the reasons why I say that, and I've got Harry Belafonte talking about this in the chapter, Lonnie Love from The Real, um, Dr. Yana Van Zandt, and she said something so powerful she said, you know, and, and I have um, Bill Plant, veteran, retired veteran White House correspondent, who said when he was covering the White House, he was there for Bloody Sunday. And the word N-I-G-G-E-R was used for hate at that time when they were trying to beat us, jail us, kill us, strange fruit hanging from a tree. Dr. Jan Levan Zant said in this book, she said they used to kill N-I-G-G-Rs and rape N-I-G-G-R, bitches. I said, there you go. So we say we want to take back a word. No. <laughs> How do you take back a word of hate? And for us to call each other that, it's still bad. I mean, yeah, it slips, you know, it slips, but it doesn't make it right. So Dr. Johnson, what were you going to say?
Huh. What is that? Okay, and you, you make a very good point. It is home training. But I'm going to say this. In my, my mother, she taught, there's a, diff, there's a generational difference. Each generation changes. Each generation, we have, we have so much in this generation. I mean, I, when I was a kid, we didn't have, my mother would not dare put something worth $100 or $300 in my hand, okay? The phones and all this social media. I'm like, I was lucky to get an Atari. Remember that? I was, you know, with the joystick. And you sit there with it. I mean, let alone go somewhere and plan some device. That's part of the problem. But we, as a people, are not communicating with each other. We are consumed with having our earbuds in, having our devices in our hands, and we don't communicate. And when we come home, and I'm guilty of this sometimes, make dinner, whatever, and, you know, we don't really have those discussions, okay? But also, I believe there is a disconnect. And there are disconnects in several ways. If you remember when President Obama was elected, there was this great euphoria. Then after he was elected, I didn't hear too much about... Or didn't see those. I, they stopped doing those Black History Month specials. You know, I used to look, and, and that's a little small thing, but it's really a big thing. I used to look forward to those. Our kids don't know Grandma Moses. They don't know how she took people in the middle of the night or, or through the day singing certain Negro spirituals to, to, to let them know, come out from, from the bushes to get to the promised land of the North. Our kids don't know that. Our kids don't know about Shirley Chisholm, who said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. The first black woman to run for president. So, what did you say? No, it's not necessarily all home training. Some of it's, some of it's education, but some of it's education. But my mother, 
God rest her soul. She was very forward thinking in the fact that when I drove, she was very proud to see black officials. She would, she would tell me about these people. When we stopped at a traffic light, she would say a black man made this. When we, I'm telling you, I'm so sick of the peanut. Every time I look at a peanut, you know, there are how many uses for a peanut? George Washington Carver. And I still, when I see a peanut, I think of my mother. So my (laughs) mother, I mean, but I had, I mean, and that times, am I telling the truth? My mother was that kind of, so my mother always told me, but you know why my mother told me? Because as a kid, when she lived in the very rural part of the uh, the South and very small Podunk town, the Southeast tip of North Carolina, she told me that when she would walk to her one room schoolhouse, the white kids would be on the bus and spit at her. And that hurt me. She was she still was there. She was still in that. She was close to what was happening. She told me of the time when she lived here, when she moved here, you had to go to Philadelphia to try on clothes. You and, you know, Congressman Elijah Cummings talks about that in this book, how his mom used to take him in this book, used to take him to these segregated pools to integrate the pools. And this fierce fighter of justice and the American way, he needs to be a superhero. He's, he says in this book, and this is the crazy piece, and I think this is some of it too. We sometimes want to be, forget because the pain is so real. We don't want to feel less than that we don't have first-class citizenship. And Congressman Elijah Cummings said something. He he fights for our rights. He is like the, the bastion of everything for the Democratic Party. He is their fighter. But with that, he said as a child, what happened to him really plays on him. He says he still has, he has issues of self-esteem because of that. And he has to fight that every day. So we are still dealing, it's hard to know that you are a black person in that town, that white male dominated town that sometimes doesn't want you there and passes over everything that's dealing with you and your issues. But also I think the further away we get from the civil rights movement, I was a few months old when Dr. King was killed. The further away we get, our kids feel they've got it easy. They don't know the struggle. They don't understand. So we have, and that's where the parental influence comes in. That's where at mama's knee comes in. That's where we talk. So that's, I hope I answered your question, part of it. Okay. Yeah. That young man in the back. It's no middle ground. As I talk in my book, I talk about 
the issue of policing. This is not new. What we're seeing even today, what we're seeing is not new. We've been here. It's just a different name, different face to it. It's a different way. But from the time um, Africans were enslaved in this country, there's been uh, a serious problem between policing and the black community. This has gone on for, for centuries. This is nothing new, but there's got to be a change. And I believe one piece, I mean, this it's, it's not going to be changed in four years, two days, eight years, what have you. This has been going on. This has been pervasive for a long time. But each one of us, I believe, makes a change. And if we have to, one, we have to learn to comply and then complain. I believe that is important. I also believe, I thank God, even though I complain about these little devices, I thank God for these videos. I thank God. No, seriously, this this body camera issue has been such a wonderful thing. Um, and, and there is a concern, though, with the new Justice Department or with the new wave of of thinking that there could some some locales and some states may suppress the video. There is a thought about that now because they don't have to wear the cameras. So the locales really determine what they're going to do. So there is a concern. A, 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 uh, uh, eagle eye out on that to see what's going to happen with that. But when it comes to policing, it's it's really a tough issue. But there is in Baltimore, I, I believe, and, and this has been a model. We had community policing, didn't we, uh, Mr. Sims? Community policing, some form of it. Okay, but you know when when you know the people in your community, when you know them, you kind of understand them a little bit more. And I think that needs to be brought back to the fullest extent to help. And that's my feeling. But this militarization, law and order, racial profiling is just going to make things worse. But we have to we have to be the agents of change. And again, if you have a problem with it, you have to let your. Yeah, it's, it's good to protest, but protest peacefully, peacefully, the most successful, the most successful campaign in this nation. The most successful movement in this nation was the civil rights movement. And when they started, it was only 4% of black churches supported them. And look at what change happened. So you have to be strategic and think it through and learn to leverage and get people in mass and consistently and persistently press for change. It will come. It comes slowly. But I do believe that 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 camera thing is really one of the best things out of this Obama administration that, that, that we can visibly see because now it's not myth. It's not conjecture. We used to talk about it amongst ourselves, you know, for many years and now everyone sees, and now you have Republicans and Democrats both buying in on criminal justice reform. How the devil is in the details. That's the problem, but there needs to be some kind of there needs to be a change. There needs to be, and I agree with you, but we have, there's got to be some kind of coming together because it's, it's right now, it could be at a breaking point, not just here, but around the country. I hope I answered your question. Okay. Yes. Hmm. 
And what's the wrong way? Violence is not right. the right way. We have to be loving. We have to have patience. We have to be trusting. But most of all, we have to believe that God is going to give us what we're entitled to. I may not see it. My children may not see it. My grandmother has been dead for over 30 years, and she has not seen how far we have come when she used to tell me, stay in your place, and there won't be any trouble. What is my place? I have a place just like the white child had a place, but I couldn't take it because they said it wasn't mine to take. But today we have to realize to get ahead, number one, we have to get education. Mm-hmm. Our young people have to learn, stay in school, learn, because that's what's going to open that door for you. Not the gun, not kicking, but to learn, get an education, and learn how to deal with that next level, because that's the only way we're going to get there. That's yes, true. it's our right to be there, but unfortunately, we had to struggle more for it. And we're still struggling. And yes, there is still a lot of racial going on around us. They wanted to make us believe since Dr. King gone off the scene, we've gone back as a black race. And a lot of it, I must admit, we've done it to ourselves. But we have to learn. Get an education, our young children. Teach them. And let them see the right way. Thank you. Thank you so much for that comment. Now we have two questions here. Are you enjoying the conversation? Okay. I didn't, wait a minute. Are you enjoying the conversation? All right now. Because I told you I was intentional about being here. (laughs) And I was intentional about coming. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, yes, definitely. Um, First, my name is Kelly Bethia. Hi, Kelly. I live across the street on Fayette. Um, I was born here, but I grew up in D.C., so I split my time pretty evenly. But my question is, I'm not a mom, so this is a different perspective for me. But you have a mom. Oh, I have a mom. I definitely have a mom. And she loves you so much, which is another (laughs) reason why I'm here, because I'm her proxy. Um, How in this climate do you start a conversation with your children as organically as possible, meaning it, if there's not another incident, like God forbid something else happens, such as a Tamir Rice or Freddie Gray or Eric Garner, if those don't happen, you know, your children are still going to be raised. They are still going to have questions. How do you start a conversation? I almost feel like this is kind of like the sex talk, but it's regarding race. <laughs> and you know, race is a taboo talk for so many people. You know, um, Jimmy Carter, former president Jimmy Carter, he said his mother never really talked to him, but he led by, she led by example with race. And he, you know, he talks about that in this book. But I'm going to say this, one thing that parents can do, you're here, bring a child into this room, pick up some books. And just start the conversation. And, you know, I have, at my home, I have all sorts of books. But I have a Dr. King book and a Rosa Parks book I want my baby to read. And I have them in front of her face. And we're going to sit down and read it because I just want her to know what's going on. So, and um, what, the baby, the Grace for President book. 
Yeah. There's a grace for president. Book. So there are like little books that I find for her. And I'll say, let's read. That's one way to start the conversation. Another way is if you're just watching TV or something's in social media, you talk about it. So we, my kids, I want them to tell me everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, and the indifferent, but I, the conversations have to be had. If you, it's a survival tool. Now it's, it's not something like, Oh, I think I'll do it. It's a necessity now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Really? Wow. But it was always somehow part of the conversation. It wasn't like, okay, Kelly, we're going to talk about this issue today. No, it's not. It's organic. It's like, you know, it's not just like, okay, I want to talk to you about race. If something's going on or if you feel led by something that's going on around you or you feel it's just time for them to understand if they're going into the workforce. I mean, you know, my mother told me going into the workforce how I need to assimilate how I need to be. That is part of the conversation because there's a time that some of us were not allowed to wear dreads, cornrows, or what have you. Can you imagine me going slinging my, my rose in the White House? Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I do want to do that. You know, it's easier. I'm on Chris Matthews. Hi, Chris, with my rose. <laughs> He's <I'm> like, okay. <laughs> But, you know, those are the conversations that we have because we want to see each generation, we want them to do better than what we have done and what our mother or their mother has done. So we want to move the ball forward. So I think those, those are organic conversations, but they come in so many different forms. Yes, sir. Yes. You I guess I have a reaction, a comment, and a question. I wanted to react to the young man in the back a while ago about how young people reacted. You were talking about picking up a rock and throwing it at a policeman. I think one of the, you know, it gets back to education again, but these young people are totally fearless. Hmm. They have no concept of the consequences. And they have nothing to lose. They feel they have nothing to lose. And they feel they have nothing to lose. Yes. I agree. I agree. Now the question. Uh Totally different. How did you personally react to Steve Harvey agreeing to meet? Why the are you Trump? asking me about <laughs> this? Is about this is about my book at Mama's Knee, Mothers and Race in Black and White. Um, <laughs> I told you I was intentional by being here. Um, how did I react about Steve Harvey? Okay. Uh, uh, hmm. Well, I'm gonna say this to you. I'm gonna say this to you. Um, I'm not surprised by the things I see lately. Um, Once I knew for whatever reason that morning, I knew that the morning of the election, I knew in my bones that he was going to win. I felt it. So I wasn't surprised at anything. And he is an entertainer. He, I mean, for him to stand next to Kanye West, not long after, no, I'm serious. After Kanye West got out of the hospital, that's telling me something for him to bring attract the entertainers and, and what the um, Trump, officials were saying, oh, um, you know, Obama, President Obama did the same thing, but he didn't parade them in front of the camera. So that's one thing. He didn't parade them in front of the camera at first. Um, And when they came, they came for events. You didn't necessarily know that they were around. Now, with Steve Harvey, if he wants to help, God bless him. I think it's great that he wants to help. 
Um, but I also, I'm glad that he also at the same time talked to MLK three, but I also want to see him talk to more intellectuals, um, about the issue of race. I want him to talk to people like Mark Moriel, like, uh, the head, uh, Cornell Brooks. I want him to Mark Moriel, the head of the national urban league dealing with the economics of the black community. I want him to talk to, to, uh, Cornell Brooks, the head of the NAACP. He needs to talk to a gambit, not just one person. And I'm, I, I applaud. Steve Harvey has a platform, and I'm glad that he wants to reach out to him. But there are more people he can talk to as well. I'm glad I was. I'm glad he's doing that, but I'm also glad that he talked to MLK three. But he needs to talk to more. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I am doing that. I um, this this book we have been doing. Actually, um, I have we've expanded because um, a lot of the private schools are pulling me in. I've done some public schools with the last book, but this book I got a lot of private schools in the area pulling me in. That's a very a diverse crowd, and that's what I'm looking for. The diverse crowd, because we can talk to ourselves until till the day is done. We we know we know we feel it. We live it. We breathe it. We eat it. We spend it. But we have to get to the people who need to understand. And and I just I'm really thankful that um, I've expanded into the independent private schools in the area as well. But I'm talk I talk to kids. I talk to kids everywhere. So I'm I'm always talking to kids. So thank you thank you for for your push, my sister. So you know I came up here, Kent. right? We uh, have one yes. Wait a minute, just wait a minute. Hold on, Kim. You had you had one, and how many? Because maybe we we'll do a real fast round robin. How many other people have questions? Because I'm okay. 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 Go ahead, ma'am. Hi. I'll I'll be very fast. First, I want to thank you for for being here and having this conversation. Thank you. As well as the other conversations you have. And there are other conversations around Baltimore, if I can just distract from you for just a second, that we need and we can, you know, talk about this and, and keep the conversation going. And in that same spirit, I was wondering, because I have not read the book, how you deal with the individuals that have not given birth to children also playing the role of mama because there are a lot more of them than we know and all of us when the sister right here said well I don't have any children I'm not a mother but we all are mothers I didn't give birth but I'm a mother great question Um, I have Lonnie Love from The Real who's a dear friend Um, she's a comedian she's in the book she talks about her mother what her mother taught her she is a role model and a lot of young women look up to her she makes them laugh but they also look to her as a role model and she talks talks about just the she talked about assimilation and how she had to go through you know 
when she was work, going into the workplace, do I wear braids or do I have my hair up to keep this job? And she said she couldn't do it. So she went into, to, went into entertainment and she became a comedian. She's flowing with her braids now. But she talked about that. Um, I have Erica Alexander, who used to be on um, Living Single. Yes. And she was also in, what's that show? Queen Sugar. Cosby show. Yeah. So, and she talks about, I mean, she is, she's a powerful voice. She doesn't have children, but she talks about the issues of race in a very plain way. And she goes out, she was on the trail for Hillary Clinton. And I was, I did a, 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 an event with her and she had those young people just ready to move and, and, and ready to march and, and do what they had to do because it's about your experience that relates to the child or to the person so that they can glean something from. We don't always have to be there. Victoria Rao from uh, Young and the Restless. Young and the Restless. She, her mother, her birth mother was not the one who raised her. She learned from a woman, and she's in the book, she learned from her foster mother who taught her about the fine arts and, and, and investing in homes and real estate. And she is his, one of the only African-Americans, really, to have a home in Beverly Hills to this day, the same one she bought years ago. And she's in the arts, and she's made a great career. So it's about the influences. It doesn't necessarily have to be the woman who... Who you birthed? Who birthed you? It doesn't necessarily have to be that woman, but it's someone—a mothering figure, or someone who you have esteem for that you listen, you you bow down to their wisdom and listen at their knee. That's what it's about. And all these stories are so powerful. And it's not about jumping out, running and marching, but it's about listening to people's stories about what their mother told them or what they have gleaned and told their children and how they make their children. Uh, better people in a world that still has some flaws. So it's about listening and talking. Mm-hmm. It's interactive. Right. It's interactive. And there was Kim. Um, so I have two Uh-oh, she's got to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> Different generations. Hillary Clinton's in it too. Okay. (laughs) She's a sister. She's an honorary sister.
Sandra Bland. Okay, Kimberly. Um, So here's the deal. Um, I think we are still a nation. I mean, there are some very forward-thinking men and women out here who understand that women are powerful. We run the household, even if there is a man in the household. We are the buying power. We go out to the store and buy for our families. We are the ones who make a lot of the decisions. And the problem is, is that we still live in a time where there is sexism. There is sexism. Um, We saw it with Hillary Clinton. I mean, I know people don't like her to say, oh, she's crooked, she's this, she's that, okay, fine. But really, if it weren't her, if it was a Condi Rice or somebody else, would you really vote for her? Think about it, seriously. Would you vote for a woman? Would you vote for a woman? That's the question. We can lead your home, but you don't want us to preach in your church. You don't want us to be the head of your school you don't want us to be the head of your country so and then and then add this other layer being black as Shirley Chisholm said that's a double whammy a woman and black I know in Baltimore City government let's give the Baltimore City government a big round of applause (laughs) and that I know the last the last um no, the, no, no. Even the last, the last uh, cabinet, the, the last leadership uh, was all female, and now it's continually all female. Correct? Amen. I'm not mad at it. So, <laughs> but you know, there are still minds that has that have to be changed, um, and people just I don't know what it is. But I'm going to say this to you: I am a black woman in a white male-dominated town. Been there for 20 years, and it's not easy. Men talk to men. Presidents are men. And they get, Helen Thomas told me this, the late, great Helen Thomas. She said, and she's history, and I miss her to death. Um, She said, you know, the problem was when she was around when Kennedy was there and some other presidents, when the presidents wanted to talk to reporters, they would call the men and they'd go out on the boat together or go golfing together. And she was left to go have tea with the first lady. But this is the man that's running the country. You want to hear from him what he has to say. So it's hard for a woman to get in the mix. I don't play golf. I don't like sports. So I got to figure it out. But I think I'm doing okay. You know, standing for, thank you, standing for 20 years. But it's, it's not easy. So, I mean, we still have to fight the, the sexism, the racism, the, all the isms. There are isms out there that just need to go away. So they're just isms that we have to fight. But it's, there's a better day of coming. Baltimore is the example on that front, and that's a blessing. So I hope I answered your question. All right. Yes, sir, in the back, and we're done. I'm going to read one thing before we go. Most segregated time. Yep. Okay. 
No, that was Mitch McConnell. <laughs> yeah. It's silly, silly. But you, you got the sound bite, you just got the wrong person. But go ahead. <laughs> You need to read my first book. (laughs) (laughs) The Presidency in Black and White, my up-close view of three presidents in race in America. Buy it now. (laughs) No, um, yes. It's cyclical. And I'm going to say this to you, and I'm going to say... Cyclical. It means it goes in a circle. It's a never-ending circle. And when I say that, I want you to understand... Race is always on the table, on the hill, it, on both sides of the aisle in Washington, D.C. But the problem is it's not sexy enough to make the A block of the news or above the fold. It is always on the table. In black media, we're always talking about it. You know, um, you got an, uh, I don't even, th- he hasn't, everything is going on. He has not picked an AG yet, right? Uh, uh, agriculture secretary, right? Purdue. Oh, he did. Oh, he picked Purdue. Okay. All right. Anyway, so, Sonny Purdue. Whew. All right. Well, the reason why I say that I've been working, but let me tell you this and race does play. And this is a perfect example. So president elect Donald Trump was forward thinking with Omarosa and the transition team, and they were going to get former Congressman JC Watts to be the ag secretary. Mike Pence had called JC Watts. Yes, it's true. But what happened was race played into it because the farming community said, no, we want someone who looks like us. So I guess that's Mr. Purdue. So, but with ag, that's a very, it's not just about farming. They deal with WIC, the women and children uh, uh, funding. They deal with those stipends for food and things of that nature. So, and then, not only that, you have the housing issue. You got blighted housing around the country. You got Ben Carson there, for better or for worse. You know, race is on the table, but you don't hear about it enough. You know, they start talking about it. You start hearing about it. The mainstream media starts talking about it when there's that crescendo moment, when there is Hurricane Katrina and people sitting on roofs begging for their lives or gasping for air under the roof or in the Superdome. You hear about it when you see Michael Brown dead in the street. You hear about it when I can't breathe 11 times. You hear about it when there are rocks thrown at Mondamin Mall or around New Shallow Baptist Church. You hear about it at crazy times when it's a crescendo moment, but it's always on the table, but you don't hear about it then. You only hear about it when it's sexy. And that's the sad thing. And that's why I encourage you to stay in black media, listen to black media, read credible, don't read fake news. And when I say fake news, those sites that you don't know who they are, the credible news sources, ABC, NBC, USA Today, CNN, um, who else? Baltimore Sun, (laughs) Afro-American newspaper, yes. 
essence, Jet Ebony, you got to stay with us because we still have you in mind when others don't. So it's on the table. Presidents will tell you it's on the table, but no one's asking about it but me. I was the one. How many of you watched that press conference yesterday? You said you listened to me. <laughs> yeah, I was the only one to ask a race question. Thank you, sir. Hope that answered. Yes, ma'am. Really fast. You had a question. Yes, you had a question. Come on now. <laughs> you know what? Whatever God has in store, um, we'll see. Um, I'm. We'll see. I'm not going to say anything. Um, I. I don't. Let me say. I don't want a show. Um, at this point, but if God has it in store for me, I will have a show. And I will say, hey, Baltimore. I'll be like, hey. <laughs> no, but uh, right now I'm happy where I am. But, I mean, I think um, MSNBC and I are going to try to do some things together. On the later shows. You watch too much. AM Joy. But see, and see, let me tell you the reason why you see me on certain shows at certain times. I work. I have a full-time job, okay? I love my money. I love making my money. <laughs> but I choose, I actually choose what shows and when I go on. Um, I have children that I try to engage with on a daily basis. I make it a point, to, I try to make it a point to take them to school every morning. And then leave here and go to work and then try to come home every night because I don't want to be on TV every day because I have my children. When all is said, when all is said and done, that's me. I want to put out kids that that will be a a productive part of society that you don't have to say, oh, look, at, I'm going to take care of my home first. Y'all going to have to get it right somewhere, somewhere else. But I, I have to take care of my home first. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's nice to be on Brian Williams. It's nice to be on Lawrence O'Donnell. I love me some Chris Matthews, who did the forward to my book. I love me some Chris Matthews. Y'all watch Chris Matthews, please. Um, and, I, I mean, I like all the programming. I also like CNN. But MSNBC and I may do something, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Thank you, guys. I wanted to read something to them yes, before. Yeah, yeah I'm going to read something, too. All right. Tomorrow, the 44th president of the United States leaves the White House. But I want to leave you with something. I asked him about, as we were flying into Selma, Alabama, for the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, the 50th anniversary, I asked him a question about post-Obama versus post-racial. And he said to me, I think that legacy will continue in the minds of children who grow up never having known to this point a president who was black. And I think that shapes attitudes among young African-American children, but also among all children. And I like to think that that will have a useful lasting effect in terms of people's attitudes about who can do what and changes people's images of what's possible for any child in America. I wouldn't equate my election with seminal moments like the Emancipation Proclamation or the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Those were massive changes in legal status that represented fundamental breaks with America's tragic history and were the pillars, the 15th Amendment, 14th Amendment, and 15th Amendment of the Civil Rights Act of the 60s. Those were 
those represented the dismantling of formal discrimination in this country. There's nothing that's going to compare to that. Moving forward, our work is to build on the work, to fine-tune that work where we see formal discrimination or state-sponsored discrimination still occurring. But increasingly, our work has to do with dealing with the ongoing legacy of a divided society, closing the opportunity gaps, closing the achievement gaps, closing the wealth gaps. The inevitable inevitably have been passed on from generation to generation because the gaps were so wide. And that involves no one piece of legislation, but it requires a host of different efforts. It means investing in early childhood education. It means us making sure everybody has health insurance. It means that that kind of public-private work that we're doing through My Brother's Keeper. It means getting more African-Americans in STEM education, in math and science and engineering. And so there's not going to be one silver bullet, but rather it's going to be a sustained effort on a variety of fronts that will take us to the next leg of this journey towards a a most just society. And with that, those were the words of the 44th President of the United States, President Barack Hussein Obama, who transitions from the White House tomorrow at 12 noon. And that gave me a teary eye. (laughs) That's history. That's history. And with that, I thank you all. I hope to sign more books. Okay, let's give one more round of applause. Continue applause. Thank you very much. No crying. No crying. You're going to have the whole room crying. I know. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.